Okay, we're looking this morning at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 21. This is going to complete this 12-week series that uh, we've spent looking at this letter from Timothy, sorry, from Paul to Timothy. And we will look at the final section this morning. Let me give a quick review here. and then we can, uh, we'll pray in a moment here after we get, uh, get settled some. Uh, quick review, kind of an overall summary of this letter. First Timothy is this letter written from Paul to Timothy, telling Timothy to remain in Ephesus where he needs to defend the true gospel against this false teaching that's being put forward that has something to do with this desire to uh, look into the mysteries of the law. There's some kind of Old Testament uh, Jewish roots to this uh, false teaching. Uh, the result of this false gospel, though, that's being proclaimed is that it's, there, there's this vain discussion resulting, there's arguments, and there's division throughout the church because of it. And so what Paul says is he points to the true gospel and he says, you're going to know the true gospel because it results in love. He says that in chapter 1, verse 5. And so uh, these false teachers had some sort of official role in the church. And so as we've seen throughout the semester, there's a lot that that Paul says about order in the church. And the reason that all of that comes up in this letter is because he's dealing with with those who are in uh, potentially official roles in the church who are teaching this false doctrine. Uh, The past couple of weeks, Keith has covered uh, this kind of variety of instructions in the church. Uh, that Paul includes towards the end of this letter. Today, what we're going to do is see this last section uh, as, as the final charge that Paul gives to Timothy. And so what we're going to see here is that it, he pulls together a lot of what we've been talking about the entire semester. So a lot of this will be review, um, but uh, it, it's intended to be that way. It's going to pull together that which Paul has been speaking this entire time. Okay, um, Let me pray for us, and then uh, we'll talk some more about this passage in particular. Let's pray. Father, be with us now as we look to your word. We pray that you would send your spirit to enable us to understand your word, uh, to love your word, and to see you, the God of the word, and to, uh, to love you and follow you. We pray that your spirit would be our teacher this morning, and that we would uh, gain great wisdom and knowledge Uh, from this passage, and that it would result in transformed lives, and that we would uh, even be equipped to uh, further advance your mission in this world. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, This is one week early, but uh, Advent begins next week. And uh, so obviously we'll be talking a lot about that in the coming weeks. Um, but this is going to, I'm going to tie it into this passage. This is a, a fitting sort of beginning to the season of Advent. Advent is, uh, is just a Latin word for the word coming. And so what it means is it's a, it's a celebration of looking back at Jesus' first coming in the incarnation. But then there's also this element of Advent that is a looking forward to his second coming, his return. And so there's this sort of tension within Advent of a, uh, of a sense of a hope-filled or hopeful expectation. But there's also a sense of longing and expectation that is still unmet. Um, and so it's, it's sort of a picture of the Christian life as one of journeying 
and even persevering, where you experience and have a genuine, real taste of, um, of what the fullness of the kingdom will be, and that we are truly united to Christ, Jesus has truly come, we stand justified before God, and uh, we have been indwelt by His Spirit. And at the same time, we know that sin still resides in us. Uh, sin still resides in this world, and so we're longing for Jesus to return and to complete uh, the outworking of his work uh, such that we would see uh, the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. So there's this call there to persevere that's kind of at the heart of Advent, and that's a huge part of the Christian life, and it's a part of what Paul is calling Timothy to do here, and that's why I want to begin by mentioning those words on Advent. He calls him to persevere in his own faith, um, but he also calls him to persevere in his guarding of this true gospel against the false teachers that he's been saying. So um, I want you to, I'm going to do that up front so that you can listen for that theme of perseverance as we read this passage. And here's what we'll see. This is on your sheet, our focus. The true gospel calls and enables us to persevere in taking hold of that which is truly life. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through the end. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from repro reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, uh, so here's what I, I want to frame our time. I want to do this. Uh, in terms of these charges, the first would be Paul's charge to Timothy, which is verses 11 through 16. You get Paul's charge to the rich, which might seem a little weird and out of place in verses 17 to 19, but we'll talk about, uh, explore why possibly Paul's putting that in here. And then verses uh, 20 to 21 will be Paul's repeated charge, which is really his summary statement of the whole of this book. So first, uh, Paul's charge to Timothy. He starts in verse 11 by moving away from this discussion on these false teachers, and then he talks about the dangers of greed, and he makes this intentional contrast then for Timothy. He says, but as for you, O man of God, flee, this is the first of these four commands, flee these things. 
Um, and so I, I want us to notice here, these, uh, all four of these words are these strong, active commands that Timothy gives. Okay? Flee from these things. Get away from them. Run from them. Escape from them. And the reason for it is that these things are dangerous that he's just talked about. These things that they've warned against. And if you look back, if you've got your Bible open, you can see this. We might ask, well, what's he talking about here? What is he calling Timothy to flee from? It's definitely this unhealthy love of money, this greed that, that Keith, I'm sure, talked about last week, verses 6 through 10. But he's also saying, flee from this false teaching. Don't fall prey to this. And then also, flee from this divisiveness and this destruction that the controversies are, are, uh, are resulting in in the congregation. So don't do those things. Flee from these things that are characteristics of the false teachers. Don't do them. But he says not just to flee from them, but to run to something else. And that's what he says there in, again, in verse 11. Pursue these things. And then he goes on to give this list of virtues. This is where we get, I think, the first picture of perseverance here. Um, and, and maybe it's helpful to think of it in this way. He, he's, he's not just giving a laundry list of things that you need to try to do. Okay? It's not just a laundry list of things to try and check off. What he's done here is he's saying, flee from this way of life that leads to death. And instead, pursue and run towards this beautiful vision of the good life that is what it means to be united to Jesus and to, to actually experience this eternal life now. See, that, that's how Paul views transformation in the Christian life. It's not, I'm going to do, uh, just obey these rules as if they are just something in the abstract. What he's saying here is, is pursue this way of life because this is eternal life in the sense that this is what it means to be united to Jesus and to live in his kingdom. So step into these things, run towards them and pursue them. And as Darwin says uh, so often, view these things as promises. These are things that God is bringing about in you. So pursue them uh, with all that you can here. So live into this reality of who you are now in Christ and become who you will be for all eternity. So all these six characteristics here that, that he calls them to pursue are characteristics of Jesus as well, and we are called to put those things on in that way. Um, quick li- uh, just a quick take on this list so you can see this. If you notice, righteousness and godliness are, are these two that relate generally to our relationship to God. We, we would then live a life that's in, in accord with God's desires for us. It would be one characterized by righteousness and a godliness or a piety. So these two relate to God. The second two, faith and love, um, would be the, these kind of fundamental aspects of the Christian life that are the sort of the fuel of the Christian life. Um, one that uh, one, one commentator puts it, they're the animating principles of the Christian life. One that is uh, characterized by trust in Jesus, faith in Him, and then one that is characterized by uh, both a reception of love from God and then an outpouring of that love to other people. And then these last two pertain more specifically to this call to persevere. There's a call to steadfastness and a gentleness. And the way the same commentator puts this is that these are how we are to relate to a hostile world, which is what Timothy's dealing with here, right? Um, to, to continue uh, steadfastly, but to do so gently in the way that he interacts with people around him. So, 
pursue those things. He then says, fight the good fight. That's the third command here. Uh, and this is actually not as much a, uh, a metaphor of war and fighting in that sense as much as it is uh, one of, uh, of athletic competition, which again fits with this theme of perseverance, to continue on, press on, fight, and recognize that there's going to be a struggle to do it. So probably talking here against or uh, calling Timothy to, to fight this fight of his own personal faith as well as to continue in, um, in fighting against false teachers as well in contending for the gospel. Um, okay, and then finally here, uh, taking hold of the eternal life. So he says, make it your own. Live into the reality of your eternal life now. And I've said this before, I think it, uh, it, it's worth saying again, that eternal life, when we hear that, uh, oftentimes we think of that as something that is purely future, as if that's something that's going to begin when we die, and then it's at that point that we actually then partake of eternal life. That's not how the Bible thinks about it. Eternal life is something that we immediately begin to experience when we put our faith in Jesus and are united to Him. Because that, what, what that eternal life is, is it's, uh, another way to say that is, it's a life, it's kingdom life. It's life as God intended it to be. Life where we're reconciled to God, to neighbor, and to the world. And so we begin and live into that eternal life right now. And so that, that, I think that helps us in what uh, Timothy is being called to do here, to take hold of that and embrace it now. Embrace that life and live into it at this point. And he says, about which you've made the good confession. This is probably referring to his ordination, although it's not clear. It could be referring to his profession of faith. Um, okay, I've talked too much without asking a question. Uh, so, in light of these four, four things, here's the question I want to throw out for us. How would you summarize Paul's description of the Christian life based on these four commands? How does this description of the Christian life strike you? I think it has clear expectations. Okay. Yeah, clear expectations. Um, those are being set forward, um, and it's not... It, it, yeah, it's, it's not unclear as to what, what uh, Paul is um, calling us. And, and again, this is a great passage, uh, like so much of 1 Timothy, where it's, it's certainly written directly to Timothy, but they're... Um, it's almost immediate application to us as well in the Christian life. What else? Yeah, active. I think that's, that's a huge uh, picture that we get here, that the, the Christian life is not something passive, but something that, that we are actively pursuing, and it's, it's Jesus himself that we're actively pursuing. Always a fight, yes, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's where... Um, the image of perseverance, uh, the image of a journey, the image of a fight can be really, really helpful um, because that is a, a very accurate description of our own experience, of course, too. What else? Any other thoughts? For a young pastor, it's a progression from this fight to eternal life. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, even viewed vocationally for Timothy, um, it, it's giving a... A, a very frank picture, not only of what the Christian life's going to be, but what his ministry is going to continue to be as well. Because in almost all these cases, as I said, it's both the Christian life as well as his contending for the, um, 
the truth of the gospel as well. Yeah, Max. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's a, there is certainly that, um, there is that future aspect for sure, um, and this is the call to continue to, to move towards that, uh, continue to pursue it, continue to lay hold of it, knowing that the fullness will be experienced in the end. Yeah. Anything else? Let's move on to the, the actual charge then that's given. This is verses 13 and 14. It says, I charge you in the presence of God. This is going to be important here, and we'll even look at these right from the get-go here. He, he gives this charge, but he, he cites two witnesses, um, which is a, a, a way that you would give a charge. You, you would say, you, you would uh, appeal to these witnesses who are going to, um, to testify to this charge. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confessions. This is kind of interesting uh, that he, he says this in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, but what's important for us to notice here is the, the, the way in which these two, God and Christ Jesus, are invoked here. It, it's to say, uh, God, who is the one who, who gives life to all things, and Christ Jesus who, before Pontius Pilate made this good confession, was faithful before Pilate. And so Paul is saying, uh, I'm making an appeal, I'm charging you in the, in, before these two, but it's before God and Christ that, that they are going to assist you in all of these ways to continue on, to persevere on. God, this one who, has, uh, who gives life to all things, Christ Jesus, the one who has uh, who has walked this path before you and has been faithful to the end. It is, it is before God and before Christ that I'm going to charge this to you. Um, and so he, he, he charges him before Christ to give encouragement to him that he's going to hold fast even in the, in the face of opposition, just like Jesus did before Pilate. So this is likely referring, there's some debate as to whether, and, and if you saw this, read it in your Bible, this is footnoted, that it's either before Pilate or in the days of Pilate. I think it's probably before Pilate, literally standing before him. And I have there Matthew twenty-seven eleven, which was Jesus' confession, before Pilate. But again, the point being that, uh, that Jesus is the one who is the example of this and the one who enables uh, Timothy to continue steadfastly, uh, just as he did. So, he gives that charge in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, but then the actual commandment, or the actual charge, is to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. Uh, here's a quote from a commentator on this particular verse. He says, most of the difficulties in understanding this paragraph, the entire paragraph, stem from this charge, which is at once quite ambiguous, yet the point of everything. So, a little tricky, um, and uh, in one commentary, there are eight possibilities as to what this commandment actually is. I've just given you five, um, and we won't, we won't go through all of these. Some think it's the imperatives that they've just said. Some think this is a baptismal charge that came to Timothy after he was baptized. Some think it's about his ordination. 
Um, others would say that this commandment is the, is the whole of the Christian faith viewed as a commandment or a way of life that calls us, uh, calls us into a certain way of life. The last one and the one that I think uh, is what Paul's talking about here is a commandment to Timothy to persevere again, both in his own personal faith and as well to persevere in his ministry as well. So he's called to keep this commandment unstained and free from reproach. Um, and if you think back to what Paul has said in chapter 5, he's told Timothy, keep a close watch on your life and doctrine. He says that for by so doing, you're going to save both yourself and your hearers. I think that's the same sort of thing being said here. To keep this commandment unstained and free from reproach. So the way that you live your life, the way that you embody this message that you are proclaiming, actually has some impact on whether it's believed by other people or not. That's pretty sobering for us, right? Um, It's it's a call that that recognizes that um, what we say uh, has to match our own lives as well. And so he's giving Timothy a sober uh, sober charge in that way. um, To recognize that your life is actually going to have a bearing on how your message is heard. And that's true for every one of us, but particularly true for Timothy in his position. Again, where the situation is that the fruit, there's this, there's this negative fruit, rotten fruit that's coming forth from the false teaching. And the only qualifier that's given is, is one of, uh, of time. He says, to do so until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's referring here, of course, to Jesus' second coming. And he moves from that then, um, after this charge, to, uh, to keep a close watch on his life and doctrine. Uh, to, to, he breaks into this doxology in verses 15 and 16. He says this, "...which he'll display at the proper time, he who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen." So, Paul's point here is that God is going to bring about this second coming at the right time. He's going to do it, and he has the control to do, to, to do it, to bring it about. And so, notice how he's described. This is kind of typical of Paul, where he's making a point, and then he just kind of, he just goes off on this, like, doxology. He can't help it. It's throughout his letters where it's, um, sometimes it's right in the middle of a letter. I mean, in, you get this in Romans 11, some other places. Um, in Ephesians, he does this as well. So he describes God as the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, Lord of lords, the one who alone has immortality, the one who dwells in unapproachable light, the one whom no one has ever seen or can see. And of course, this picks up John's theme as well. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 18, speaking of Jesus, no one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. So this is Paul's charge to... uh, to Timothy, uh, to persevere, to continue to appropriate, take hold of this eternal life, to actively pursue these things while fleeing from these others, to keep this uh, commandment uh, free, uh, unstained, and above reproach. Okay, so then he moves into what, what might be this sort of, um, uh, this curious section here on the rich. So he gives a charge to the rich in the middle of this. So a question for us, Why might Paul speak these words to the rich 
in the middle of these words on perseverance. Why might he do that, you think? <coughs> Excuse me. Any thoughts on that? Oh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Paulette said you're, you're more likely to grow complacent, um, less likely to persevere when you already feel as though you have everything that you need. Um, I think that's exactly what's happening here. Um, that, that there is a particular temptation, and maybe I should get this out of the way from the start. This is speaking to all of us. I mean, it's, it's not as though we, need, we have some kind of uh, idea of the rich here as if this doesn't apply to us in verses 17 and 19. That, this applies to us directly. Um, and, and I think Paulette brings up the, the exact point here, that it's easy to set our hopes on wealth and comfort and power that's enjoyed now. And if you think about those who are genuinely impoverished, who, who really don't have anything, um, they're, they're longing for, uh, for Christ's return. Their uh, desire to persevere and continue on pressing forward to that might come a bit easier than those who have this, this sense of, of comfort. Maybe, I mean, I remember thinking this before, where um, if you're honest, like heaven doesn't appeal to you a whole lot. If we're really honest sometimes, where you think like, I really enjoy my life right now. We can only ever say that when we're in a place of uh, incredible affluence and comfort, right? I mean, people uh, who uh, are in... Uh, genuine poverty, genuine need, um, don't ever wrestle with that kind of question, you know? Um, and that, that's pretty telling, I think. And I think that's some of what Paul is, uh, why he moves to this section uh, in the middle of this call to persevere. So he says, first, what not to do. Verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, again, he's comparing ages here. He's just talked about the coming of Christ uh, and, and this eternal life, the life in the, of the age to come. As for the rich in this present age, charge them to not be haughty. Okay, this may seem obvious. Why would haughtiness or pride be something that's going to be uh, of temptation to the rich? This is obvious. Why is that? Uh, yeah, what do I need God for? And also, I have all this because I did it. Um, this is because of my hard work. It's because um, I earned this. And I could, there's temptation to be haughty or prideful about that because this is my doing. Um, and then the temptation, that uh, the second thing he calls them not, to do, them not to do, is to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Okay, here's another uh, point, and this is, I'm sure Keith talked about this last week. Um, he doesn't say anything about riches being inherently bad here, right? That's important. He just says that setting our hopes on these riches, which is uncertain, is not good. It's not safe. It's looking ultimately to, uh, to money to be our God rather than the God of the Bible. Um, and that, that's the important distinction in the passage before that Keith looked at last week, that it's for the love of money um, 
that is the root of all kinds of, of evil, not money itself. So he's saying, don't mistake the gift for the giver. Don't mistake the provision for the provider, okay? Um, and we all obviously need to heed that warning. Um, let me ask that. What, what would it look like? What might it look like to set one's hope on riches? Or maybe you could ask it this way. How might we see that in our lives? Like, what, how, what sort of indicators might be present that need to be red flags to us that would say we might be setting our hope on riches? Sorry, say again. Lack of tithing. Okay, yeah. So we could maybe even say just a lack of generosity generally with our, with our, uh, with our funds. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, lots of envy. Lots of uh, not only do I want that, I don't want you to have it. Difference between jealousy and envy. Yeah. Yeah, Martin. Yes, yeah, so um, what matters most is the acquisition of more or just not losing it, and so then that justifies uh, any means to get to that end. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Great point. Yeah. Yeah, maybe a couple other things. Um, being paralyzed with a uh, sort of perpetual fear of your own financial situation. This isn't saying you should not care at all about it, but it's, I mean, we know the difference between having a healthy uh, concern and responsibility for things, and then how that can go from, from a healthy place to one that, that is obsessive and uh, being overwhelmingly uh, paralyzed with fear about it. Um, another remark that uh, I was thinking about, again, given this week, it could be a, um, a lack of gratitude to God. And not just a lack of gratitude to God, but lack of gratitude to other people. Um, if we're setting our hopes on riches, then we, we probably are not going to be showing gratitude in other parts of our lives, too. Whereas if we recognize these things to be a gift that's coming from our God, the one who is providing for us, then, then gratitude and thankfulness is going to characterize our lives as well. So, okay, so red flags, things for us to think about uh, that, that could be hindrances to us, then ultimately in our perseverance that, that Paul's calling us to. So what to do... He says, set your hopes on God in uh, the end of verse 17. And then, uh, and this is great the way he says it, he, he, because he richly provides and he does so in order that we would enjoy it. Um, that we could actually have a sense of contentment with that which God has provided for us. And then he repeats the word rich over and over again, has this play on words in verses 18 and 19. They're, they're to do good, they're to be rich in good works. 
And they're to be generous and ready to share. And in so doing, we're going to show forth the, the uh, generosity that is like God himself. Um, and so he says, you're going to store up treasure for yourselves. This is, uh, this is an echo of Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So he's saying here, your, your life is going to be oriented towards a vision of the good life. You are constantly moving towards something that you have set your hopes upon. Um, this is true at the beginning of this passage and what we're called to pursue. It's called, it, it matches this section in verses 17 and 19 and that you set your hope upon God and a vision for His kingdom that is actually going to then dictate the everyday decisions that we make. If the acquisition of wealth is going to be ultimate, our ultimate desire, our ultimate love, and that the vision of the good life is one where we acquire a bunch of toys, um, then that's what the, our life is going to take that shape. It's going to start showing itself to be that. Um, what, what he's saying, though, instead is persevere in pursuing this vision of life in the kingdom and allow that to continue to shape us and make us more and more into the image of Jesus. So, uh, so th- this is, exposes our hearts. It shows us uh, some of where our hopes are going to be. So he, he moves from this statement to the rich and then returns to these final words to Timothy. And this is a summary of, again, of both what Paul has just charged above in that first section of this passage, but then it's the, in the letter as a whole. Verses 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. And that you is plural. Grace be, grace be with y'all. That's what he's saying. Um, two commands that summarize uh, his task here in Ephesus. Guard this deposit. And, uh, and th- this is a picture of uh, that would have been very much understood by his hearers, by those who are hearing this letter read. Um, it would have been almost, and this is the way commentators talk about it, a sacred obligation that somebody would have if you entrusted what was your most valued treasure, your most valued possession, while you're away. That person has the sacred obligation to, save, to, to keep it safe while you're away. That's the language and the image that he's using here. He's saying, guard this deposit. And again, he doesn't define what the deposit is. What he's most likely referring to here is the gospel, is this body of true teaching that is in accord with who Jesus is and what he came to do. He's saying, guard that with your life. Cling to that. Um, You have an obligation to do it. Guard this deposit that has been entrusted to you. So guard it. And then, secondly, the second part of this is avoid this false doctrine, this false knowledge. He said, why, why should he do that? Because it's, it's irreverent babble, it's contradictory, and it's going to lead people away from the faith. This uh, is an echo back to chapter 1, verse 19, where he says that they've made a shipwreck of their faith. Guard the deposit, avoid this empty talk. One leads to life, the other leads to death. 
And that, that he's setting before him these final commands that picture the, the, the call for the whole of this letter. So this is the call uh, to Timothy for this entire letter. It's a call for us as well, though, to say, uh, continue to press on in this. Continue to persevere. Uh, continue to, uh, in all the ways that we can, take hold of that which is truly life. That's the call uh, that, that Paul gives to us as well. Push through those things that are, continue to be challenges that we would lay hold of it. Um, for the first time in the entire semester, I have one minute left. Finished in time. Are there any questions or comments as we summarize? Yeah, Max. Sorry, say again. I didn't. I yeah. Yes. Well, I think it's more than that. That that's one view that some have taken that it is just referring to that immediate context. But given to the similarities of what he says in Second Timothy, it's likely referring to the the whole of what he said, particularly in that it comes at the end of the letter as a summary statement. But it certainly includes what he's just said here. Um, guard this deposit, the, the whole of what I've spoken, um, including this, this passage. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Well, great. Let me, uh, let me close in prayer. We'll be done. Father, we thank you for this letter. Thank you for the uh, past 12 weeks to study it. Together, we pray that uh, we pray that uh, perseverance in uh, moving towards you, growing in our uh, likeness to your Son Jesus, and um, becoming more and more the people that we will be fully and finally in the new heavens and the new earth, would be something that um, that is beautiful and desirable for us. Um, we pray that we would uh, lay hold of this eternal life that is ours in Christ, and that we would more and more put on all these things that are ours in Him. And Lord, we pray that, uh, that we would be faithful with the deposit that you've entrusted to us, that we would, uh, that we would guard the gospel, uh, that we would love and cherish this message of salvation. Uh, and we pray that we would avoid those things that could take us astray from them. Um, we pray that you would continue to draw us to yourself, that you would preserve us, uh, and that we would give you great thanks and praise because of it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs> we'll start.